Hello, we are Restoration Church Chicago and welcome to our podcast. You can connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Our mission is to glorify Jesus everywhere, and that includes right here, right now. Thanks for tuning in. Have you guys heard about this, uh, this AI technology out there? I'm sure most people have heard about this technology where they can create an exact replica of your voice. Have you heard of this stuff? And they can mimic your voice and then they can have a, a family member call in a crisis and, and you know, ask, basically ask for money and then you send money and they scam you. And, and one story was, uh, I guess a kid got out of school at like right at three o'clock or something and the mom gets a call and the daughter's voice is like panicking, and then the guy jumps on the phone and is like, I have your daughter. And the mom has no sense of like, you know, of certainty, because the voice is an exact replica. How would you know, what would you do, right, in that moment, um, that panic? One news article to CBS, it said, what this means in practice, and I find this comical, what this means in practice, according to the FTC, is that you can no longer trust voices that sound identical to those of your friends and family members. They suggest using code words. How many of you have a code word for your family members when they call? Do you, do you confirm when, when your spouse calls? Is this really you? It's crazy, right? Not to mention we live in a world where we're bombarded with information. We, violence and sexuality are like just offered like, like hors d'oeuvres on a cocktail platter in front of us on TikTok and like Instagram all day, you know, enticing us to take bites. We're bombarded with good ideas and gurus, people that are selling us appealing fixes to our pains and frustrations. We live in a world where diagnosis becomes our identities and our feelings rule and they're clamoring for rights. We live in a world where normal and expected has kind of drifted further and further away from any sort of moral foundation. We don't even have a center to argue about anymore. And finally, we live in a world where most of the values that we understand to be true have been turned upside down and created order is being redesigned and repurposed by humans. Even our biology. There are many voices that try to mimic Jesus and drown him out. It's getting harder and harder to hear that voice of the shepherd amidst all this noise. And we Christians are particularly susceptible to complacency because we live in a world with relative comfort. Kalina mentioned last week that we don't have to persevere too much. We're experiencing a world, in my opinion, in which we're being led to believe we're being blessed when in fact we're being lulled to sleep. Now, last week, she talked from Hebrews 12 about perseverance and the need for us to fix our eyes on Jesus. She said, the race we signed up for is messy, but we signed up for this race because we were compelled by a revelation of Jesus and that we cannot let this revelation fade or remain where it began. It needs to be fresh and continually deepening in order to persevere. It takes perseverance for it to stay fresh and deepening. Now, Jesus said in John 10 that his sheep know him and they know his voice. His sheep won't follow imposters. Now, the biblical meaning of knowing in this is conveying a oneness. It's conveying intimacy, a continual deepening. And so I believe it's with a sense of urgency that we examine ourselves and our attunement to the shepherd. So we're going to build on Kalina's message through the lens of Psalm 23, which is going to be our launching pad for the next two weeks. 
2 Corinthians 13, 5 says that we should examine ourselves to see whether we're in the flesh, or in the flesh, that, that too. Examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, to test ourselves. So we're going to look at three, again, what I believe are three inseparable links in the chain of faith that we have to consider if we're going to say and mean emphatically, as David did, that the Lord is my shepherd, and then we're going to wrap up with what it means to not want. So read along with me. I think it should be up there on the screen. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When David is, is poetically expressing this shepherd-sheep relationship, he's highlighting the Christian life. We don't have to debate who the shepherd is. Jesus tells us in John 10 that he is the good shepherd. So if this story is about Jesus and us, then this story is definitely, this poem, this, this psalm is definitely about the gospel. The Lord is, our, is the shepherd of those who believe that he lived, died on a cross, rose again to save us from our sin and restore us to a proper relationship with God the Father. Everything has been done for us, as 1 Peter 1 says, by his divine power so that we may participate in the divine nature. So the question on the table today is, are we living up to what we've already attained? Are we enjoying that relationship to the fullest in response to the grace we've been given and are we experiencing the security of that relationship amongst the noise of the world? Now, we're going to ride verse 1 today because I believe the rest of the psalm hinges on that, on us owning that verse. The Lord is my shepherd. And the reason I'm breaking it down like this is because I spent about a week reading this psalm in preparation just before I started like studying and researching. I just read the psalm and I was circling and I'm underlying and I'm making notes in the margin. I'm trying to hear God for how to divide this up into two weeks. And I couldn't, get, I couldn't get past verse one. I was stuck on it. I couldn't get past, and it wasn't just the entire verse. It was the word my. I kept getting to this my shepherd thing. And, and, and it was like God was saying, read it like you mean it. And so I'm like, okay, the Lord is my shepherd. And I read it with confidence. And I, and I was proclaiming this, right, in, in, my, in the house. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And, and, and immediately, I heard, voice, I heard the voice of God say, Ryan, do you know what that makes you? Now, I need to hear this. Some of you may need to hear this. Some of you may already feel this way. But I need to hear that it makes you a sheep. Now, in our culture, as you know, that, that's an insult to call somebody a sheep, somebody who follows the crowd, somebody who gets caught up in, 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 the, in the current events and they're just taken away by that kind of stuff. It, it, it might be offensive to some, hard to grasp even, but we're all sheep. Just, it's just a matter of what or who we follow. That's the only thing in question. Philip Keller, whose, whose wonderful book on, on, on Psalm 23, um, which highlights, and every, everyone should, should read this, and this why we're not, because this book exists, it makes no point for me to preach on, on, that, on that metaphor of the shepherd's sheep. I mean, you can read this book, it's amazing. But the behavior, he says, the behavior of sheep and human beings is similar in many ways. Our mass mind or mob instincts, our fears and timidity, our stubbornness and stupidity, and our perverse habits are all parallels of profound importance. So sheep is just a nice way of saying 
hey, you stupid, stubborn, fearful pervert. I'm, I'm joking, obviously, because Jesus doesn't call us names and, and we shouldn't call each other names or motivate each other with name calling. So I'm not advocating for that, even though the voice in my head does that. But this is what the, this is what the gospel does. This is what Jesus does. This is what his cross does. It shows us to various degrees that that's exactly what we are. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross stands out amongst the noise of the world and the self-affirming echo chambers that we live in, and it shines a light showing that our nature is so fallen that the only way to save us and bring us into reality is that the Son of God had to die for our salvation, to provide us salvation and bring us back home. We could do nothing to earn it. So when David is saying the Lord is my shepherd, he's saying that with no ego. He's saying that with gratitude and excitement. He's saying, yes, yes, I'm a sheep. Thank God he showed me. I'm thrilled to belong to him. This is what a proper understanding of the gospel will do. It will put us in our place and make us happy to be there. Some of us need that reminder of the beauty of that truth and to really hear the joy in David's voice when he proclaims, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, the first point of our examination in regards to this as we look at our response to this grace, is that the person who says the Lord is my shepherd is one who embraces their sheep status and surrenders to God daily. So let's look at one sec- for one second at why David was so confident in the Lord as his shepherd. Why is his confidence wasn't in his own abilities? So we all know the story of David and Goliath, right? The Philistines and Israelites are kind of at a stalemate for, for 40 days and, and, and everyone's scared because this, this Philistine giant is calling out the Israelites. And David walks up and he's like, I got this. 1 Samuel 17, but David said to Saul, your servant's been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. So David comes up there and he lays out his resume. He's like, I've killed bears and lions, right? I mean... What I would do if I had killed bears and lions is I would have started a YouTube channel, right? I mean, you could market this, right? I would have wrote a book. I'm working on the title because it's not going to be called Bears and Lion Defense for Dummies, but it's somewhere along those lines. I'd be on Joe Rogan. I'd take the credit. But David said something else in reference to that experience. He said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Notice this, David experienced a moment. He's, he's, he's telling us without telling us, he experienced a moment of desperation of being outmatched in skill, right? In strength and aggression by huge animals. And this is where God showed up. God showed up at the end of David's strength. When he was most vulnerable, God showed up. So, so let me ask you, have you had that moment? Do you remember that moment? Is it, is it a part of your resume? Do you carry it with you? Paul echoes throughout 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, particularly, where he's talking about all that he's going through in relation to the gospel. He's talking about all the work he's doing, and he's fully exposed. He's fully powerless. And he says, if I must boast, I'll boast of things that show my weakness. He was, he was boasting in the things that we would rather run from or act like doesn't exist which, by the way, shows up in the things we're afraid of, things we want to avoid, things that trigger us, our past traumas, our anxieties. 
It's here in our weakness that God is saying, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Because of God and his grace, that's how I know when I'm weak that I'm actually strong. We spend half our lives, this is my statistics, half our lives figuring out things, trying to figure out what to do, figure things out, dealing with things that God already answered for in the gospel. If if we want to experience the power of God, we have to learn to live at the end of our ropes. We have to face and and, and accept our sheep-like nature. We have to learn to live there at the end of our ropes. He isn't just showing us this so we can despair and, and focus and poor me and look at what's wrong with me. He's showing us this in relationship to his mercy and his grace. Paul and David, this is what made them special. They relished at living at the end of themselves and their confidence was never in themselves because they realized there was no reason to be confident in themselves. It was all Jesus. The surrender thing is not a one and done deal though. We, we choose to make the saving surrender the position of our hearts every day. Do we understand that we need to actively participate in that relationship with Jesus and it begins with the surrender of our hearts? Which brings us to the second point. A person who says the Lord is my shepherd is one who does what God says no matter what the cost. Faith and obedience in scripture are not found apart. We talk about them separately, but they're really not. They're hand in hand. Jesus said in John 7, 17, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. A.W. Tozer says, the willing and doing come before the knowing. Truth is a strict master and demands obedience before it will unveil its riches to the seeking soul. So when David is expressing the Lord is my shepherd, he's expressing that with this sure confidence. This assurance comes from surrendering to the will of God in obedience. 1 John 2 says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. This is how we know we are in him because we live as Jesus did. How do we know David's assurance comes from his obedience? 1 Kings 9, God confirms it when talking to Solomon. He says, as for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws as David your father did, I will establish your throne over Israel forever. Are we enjoying that confidence? Do we experience that confident knowing in our soul? This is important because we can be deceived into believing that we're okay. Because on some level, we believe in Jesus, we said a prayer, we ask him into our hearts, we go to church. But if you think about it, we tend to treat Jesus like a self-help guru whose teachings we apply in pursuit of our own will and desires. Faith and obedience isn't just applying Jesus's teachings and truth. Faith requires us to be obedient to his teachings in his will. It goes hand in hand with the surrender of our own will. It's a deliberate decision to give Jesus control of every area of our lives. As a matter of fact, obedience changes the direction of our lives in a noticeable way. We should be able to look back on the work of God in our lives and say, wow, like if God hadn't come in and done that, I don't know what I'd be in. I don't know where I'd be. The gospel should scare us about ourselves and excite us about God because we, are, because we see our sheep-like nature and his great love for us 
and what he went through to demonstrate it. Now, we're not talking about something that's easy, right? This is why Paul says in Philippians 2 that we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because we were sheep before we were his sheep. We, we come attached to so many people, places, things, ideas. Our identities are lost in those things to a certain degree. And Jesus has to work to pry our hands off those things, even things that we might define as good. And a question you might ask yourself is, how much of my definition of good is actually being defined by the culture that I mentioned earlier? We don't actually know where that line is. Jesus does. And he isn't here to negotiate values with us. He, he, he desires to be preeminent in our hearts, to have his rightful spot as the king of the throne of our hearts to, before, every, before everything. Consider Matthew 10 when he tells us straight up, I've come to bring the sword. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, that, that's deep. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Think about Abraham and Isaac as Kalina highlighted last week. That, that, that's that, that ability to let go and trust God with those things, not knowing what might happen. The Lord is my shepherd is a statement of faith that claims allegiance and requires obedience. It says everything else in life, family, work, desires, all need to fall in line. Now, please don't get me wrong. It's not that God doesn't care about our families, our money, our job. He cares more about that than, than we do. But he cares about the gospel being in the center of it all. This is why Paul said in Philippians 3 that he counted everything as worth losing for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus so will I allow every area of my life to fall under the scrutiny of the word of God? Will I submit my very life to him? This is not a small task because you might lose something very dear. Perhaps this is why so many of us keep Jesus at arm's length because we know that deep down, he's gonna disrupt some things. He's gonna shake things up. And we don't have the faith and confidence sometimes to just to let him do that. Well, how do we get it? How do, how do we gain that confidence and count everything else as loss? To live and surrender and be obedient. How do we even know what to be obedient to? So for those of you that don't know, I'm a, I'm a couples counselor by trade. So by the time couples get to me, they're living in like constant tension. The home is like a minefield, right? They, I mean, they can't even talk about anything without it turning into a fight. Now, some couples also never argue. They never argue. And then when a breakdown comes, they're like, I don't, I don't know what happened. We were fine. Now, I heard it said that our faith is like a marriage sometimes. We have the status of being married, but are we enjoying the benefits? Are we living or are we living in constant tension? Or worse yet, the delusion that things are fine, but slowly deteriorating outside of our awareness. Now, these couples invariably will say, we just need to learn to communicate. Just, just communication, that's what we need to learn. Now, now that's probably true. We're, we're going to use communication to, to, to get there. But the problem they're facing by the time they come into therapy is actually caused in large part by a lack of time together in this modern world. In other words, the premarital learning about each other and sharing with, sharing with each other that they rearrange their lives for premaritally, that, that, that is now, now they're doing marriage and now they're just doing life and now it's business. Intimacy gets killed. Now, there's good reasons for that. They're both working professionals. They work crazy hours. 
Their overlapping time in the house together when they're not working is exclusively spent on getting dinner, kids' activities, bedtime routines. They don't even have time to take care of themselves. Fast forward to therapy, and now I'm trying to get them to communicate with somebody that they don't know or trust. It's excruciating. That's how we humans relate. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't relate to us that way. But as far as we're concerned, we become like these couples in our faith. We're doing and taking care of business, but not tending to the building of intimacy and trust. And then our bond or lack thereof is exposed when we face difficult times and stress. We have to remember that as Christians, we didn't come to a religion. We came to a person. So the resiliency and enjoyment of our relationship is based on the quality time spent together in the spirit of self-examination. Let me ask you a couple questions here. Am I reading my Bible and praying as much as I feel like I should be? Am I talking to other believers about what I'm learning and what I believe God is saying to me? Am I reading books that expound on and expand my knowledge of the Bible? Now, discouragingly, one survey out there um, said that 32% of regular attending churchgoers read the Bible daily. Only 32%. When asked about this, people said they wish they had more time. Fulton Sheen, the Catholic theologian and priest, said it this way, it's never true to say that we have no time to meditate. The less one thinks of God, the less time there will always be for God. The time we have for anything depends on how much time we value it. Now, the Psalms are littered with David's love for scriptures and prayer. David knew the Lord because because he spent time in the scriptures and prayer. Psalm 119, for instance, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. If you read through First and Second Samuels in like one sitting, and the reason why this is kind of important is because you miss things when you just read in sections. But when you read, when you read a, a, a long version of, of some of these stories of people's lives, things pop out to you. And one of the things that pops out throughout David's life is this phrase or a variation of the phrase that says, and David inquired of the Lord, followed by, and the Lord said... David didn't do anything in his life. He didn't make a move without praying and hearing from the Lord before making a move. His intimacy with the Lord ensured that he knew God's voice versus the other thoughts, feelings, and emotions that were running through his head when times got tough. As Kalina mentioned last week, this knowing Jesus is key to persevering persevering in our faith. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the measuring stick by which all of our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are measured. Our true intentions are evaluated by the word of God and this work of his spirit. Our desires are put in their place, and our thoughts and feelings are organized by its truth. Without it, we have no anchor. We have absolutely no direction. There's no way to discern the will of God in our lives without daily engagement with the Lord through prayer and Bible study. Our confidence in knowing what God is saying and our confidence to carry it out is predicated on our knowing him personally, intimately, as one. And this intimacy, this relationship with the shepherd is where we can experience the truth. Experience the truth, not just know the truth. Experience the truth in the statement, I shall not want. Because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is a loaded loaded phrase. There's a lot going on here. 
Science would have us believe that we have these inner drive. We have six human needs, five human needs, eight needs. And when these needs aren't met, that's what causes us to make bad behaviors, fall into addictions, things like that. But if we just get these needs met, we'll be okay. Well, that, that's nice, because if I can figure out what need I'm trying to meet by how I'm acting, I can evaluate my own life. I can make changes according to my own perceived needs. That's great. I can find people that agree with me. But the Bible tells us something very different, that at our core, at the deepest part of us, below any measurable drive, below our traumas, below our diagnoses, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only his free, unmerited grace restores us into that right relationship with him. None of us are victims. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not minimizing, I'm not minimizing trauma. Horrible things happen. It makes it really hard. It makes it really hard. But the love of Jesus more than makes up for that. But we're not people that just need to be tweaked or fixed. We need to be reborn. We need to be remade. Our core need is grace. And if our wants and desires are not for Jesus and from his heart, then we're being driven by sin. There's no middle ground. We have to detach from this idea that we know what we need and that what we want is somehow tied to what we need. That somehow we can look at our lives and measured by our discomfort or what brings us pleasure, we can somehow deduce right and wrong in regards to the actions of our wills. Ian Bowne said, desire is the will in action. It drives us. I shall not want is saying, not my will but yours. Because I recognize my sheep-like status, I also recognize your faithfulness. That while we were still sinners, while we were dead, you died for us out of love. How much more can we trust him to make sure that whatever we need on the surface, we're going to get? And if we don't get it, by the way, as James 1 tells us, we're going to face trials. But if we don't get what we, what we think we want and we go through times of, of, of lacking, we're going through a trial to make us complete, to make us mature to receive the grace that we actually need. We get more of him. So when David is saying, I shall not want, he's using an active verb, to want, to will. It, it requires a subject, something to pursue. Essentially, I have what I need in my, in my shepherd. I, I have nothing to pursue but him because all my needs are met by him and his grace. Not only that, he is what I need. The realization of that, hold on to that. Perhaps the best expression of what David's talking about comes from that familiar verse in Philippians 4 when, when Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment. Whether I have a little or a lot, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ who strengthens me. I'm not dependent on my circumstantial provision. I want things. I'd like to have things. That's fine. But at my core, I'm okay either way because I'm not focused on things. I'm not focused on the circumstances being perfectly working out for me and me and micromanaging my life and my day. I'm focused on Jesus and those things are taking care of themselves. Ultimately, I shall not want is a proclamation of freedom in the gospel. Freedom from our obsessions, our anxieties, and our dependence on things. That when I have this right relationship with Jesus, I'm free from the preoccupations and the drives to meet my own needs. I'm free to follow the shepherd. I'm so confident in my shepherd that I can say yes and no to the right things. I'm free from the power of sin in my life to walk in the spirit and live in and on the grace of God. Our experience of not wanting is dependent on our being obedient to the will of God, walking in the spirit and the freedom provided by the gospel. Galatians 5. It's, it's dependent on our surrender to the shepherd and is dependent on our depth of knowledge of Jesus. 
But we need to pay attention to those areas of our lives where we're wanting, the things we're desiring for. Am I recognizing those areas pulling me away from my focus on the shepherd? Am I turning them over to him and walking in the grace that he provides, even counting it as a loss if necessary? When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's not just talking about God meeting his, his food, water, and shelter needs. He's referencing a state of being. Grasp this. He's recognizing a state of being that we can enjoy in our relationship with Jesus. This is a state that we're meant to live in. So let me kind of bring this in for a landing. The gospel of Jesus, the realization that he died for our sins and took our punishment in our place is what compels us to say, the Lord is my shepherd. It compels us to surrender. It compels us to obedience. It compels us to grow in our knowledge of Jesus. These are three inseparable links in the chain of faith. We don't, we don't do them to earn anything or in exchange for anything. We do them because they are the only rational response to his sacrifice when we understand our great need. And by being an active participant in this relationship with the good shepherd, we will know his voice, we will follow him confidently, we will not be led astray. If we get this, if we really say and mean that the Lord is my shepherd and we see things in light of the gospel, then we can walk out the rest of that psalm and embrace the adventure of life that Jesus wants to take us on. And that's where we're going to go next week. We're going to go in that direction next week. But I really thought it was important for us to grasp what, what, what God is saying. Can we say, can we walk out of here and say, yes, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. That's very personal. Now, maybe, maybe you haven't committed yourself to Jesus. Maybe you're exploring that. Maybe Jesus hasn't been more than an advice giver to you. But if you don't have the assurance that John wrote about if, if, you're, if you're considering that need, if you're considering how great your need is for a savior or, or, or a recommitment to Jesus, if you recognize some things that you've let get in the way, then respond. I'm sure somebody will be up here, Toby will, will let us know who will be up here to pray. Um, if, if not, reach out. Don't, don't let the moment, if something's stirring inside of you, if, if you're thinking about something, don't let the moment pass you by. Don't let it fade away. Respond, respond. Can I pray? Lord Jesus, the flesh is so strong, Lord God, and we are immersed in a culture that hates you. We are immersed in a culture and brought up in products of a culture that, that is against you, Lord Jesus. And we seek, because of the grace you've given us, because of the faith you've put inside of us, Lord God, we seek to know you more to understand you more, Lord. We thank you for your gentle reminder. We thank you that you are behind us, following us when we go astray, that you're ahead of us, leading us in the way we need to go, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, for your strength as we face these things, Lord God. Let us let, us let go of what we're holding on to and fully embrace and walk in the light of the gospel that you've given us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this body, Lord. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope you were encouraged. Don't forget to connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram.